Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. Well, Florida holds the highest rate of juveniles in adult prisons with a state average of 8.8%. We love to lock up the kids. Fortunately, Florida doesn't execute children anymore. It hasn't in 50 years, but there's nothing in the law that says it can't. And currently, the law allows Florida juries to sentence 16-year-olds to death. Three inmates currently on Florida's death row were 17 when the murders were committed for which they were condemned. Florida transfers more children out of the juvenile system and into the adult courts than any other state in the union. And in the last five years alone, more than 12,000 juvenile crime suspects in Florida were transferred to the adult court system. New statistics developed by the Human Rights Watch based on official Florida data show that more than 60% of the juveniles in Florida transferred to adult court during this period were charged with nonviolent felonies. Only 2.7% were prosecuted for murder. Well, that's the little tiny percentage we're going to look at. In 2017, the Florida Policy Institute report found that 63% of youth in prison are incarcerated for drug use, disorderly conduct, probation violations like smoking a joint, property crimes, and status offenses, such as running away. Well, you know, that's what kids do. They run away. They don't like home. They don't like their parents' rules, and they run away. So the day that a 14-year-old kid killed a neighbor kid totally destroyed one family in Jacksonville. Their marriage failed. The laughter silenced. It became a major tragedy. I'm going to tell you the story about easily one of Northeast Florida's most horrific and tragic murder cases. And it goes this way. A 14-year-old boy, he was afraid that his father would panic when his 8-year-old neighbor friend wouldn't stop crying after he get this. Accidentally struck her with a baseball. So he took her inside his house and he killed her. Apparently he got sexually aroused, but he didn't rape her. And he shoved her body in a little crawl space under his waterbed. And then a week later, his mom found the body of Maddie Clifton. It was entombed underneath her son's bed. Can you imagine? This was on November 3rd, 1998. Eight-year-old Maddie Clifton was reported missing by her mom from their Lakewood neighborhood on Jacksonville's south side. She had gone outside to play when she disappeared. Apparently, she was playing ball with the neighbor kid, Josh Phillips. So... Between November 4th and the 9th, more than a 1,000 people from across Northeast Florida searched for Maddie. They combed the neighborhood. They passed out flyers. They went on television. They begged for her safe return. Today, Josh Phillips explains that back then when he was a kid, he just ignored stuff and hoped that it would go away. So he just ignored the body under his bed. And he ignored all the people who were looking for the neighbor kid that he killed. Until, of course, his mom found her. There was probably a very bad odor coming out from under the bed. And so when she looked to see what was causing it, she found the body. And as a mom, can you imagine? You're like, Josh, what is this body doing under your bed? I mean, it would just been horrifying. So November 10th, Maddie's body is found under the waterbed of her 14-year-old neighbor by the boy's mom. So Josh Phillips is arrested and charged as an adult with murder. He tells police he accidentally hit Maddie with a baseball, then panicked because he feared that his dad would lose it and he didn't want to get in trouble. So he said he hit her with a bat and stabbed her to death 
to stop her from screaming. Well, that ought to do it. Now, if sentenced as a juvenile, he would be out of prison by the age of 24. So he'd be out of prison now. But no, he's still behind bars. So November 19th, grand jury indicted Phillips for first-degree murder as an adult, and he's 14. And he was moved from the juvenile detention center to the Duval County Jail, where he was held without bail to await trial. Now, January 13th, 1999, Maddie's autopsy is finally made public. It revealed she died from multiple blunt impacts to her head, causing multiple skull fractures. She had stab wounds to the neck, and that may have contributed to her death, you think? But there was also no evidence of sexual injury, and the medical examiner concluded that she was not sexually assaulted. So April 22nd, Judge Charles Arnold moves the trial to Polk County with our friend, the sheriff, Grady Judd. We love him. Shoot your graveyard dead because of pretrial publicity in Jacksonville. And then July 6th, Phillips' trial begins. Again, he's being tried as an adult. By then, he's probably a year older, 15. July 8th, so two days later, the trial ends with a conviction, first degree murder, after Phillips' lawyer, Richard D. Nichols, presented no witnesses. Well, that was a big help. June of 2000, Steve Phillips, the father of Josh Phillips, dies in a one-vehicle rollover in Wakula County, near the prison where his son is being held, incarcerated. Maddie's mother consoles the boy's mom, Mrs. Phillips, for the first time the two speak since the murder. I think you would tend to hold a grudge against the parents of a kid who killed your kid. It would be very difficult, especially if you're neighbors. You never really know who's living next door to you. I mean, the last person they would think would be the neighbor kid took her. So on August 20th, the judge sentenced Phillips to life in prison without parole, the only possible sentence after the jury's verdict. And the judge called the teen monstrous. So fast forward 19 years later, November 17th, 2017, Phillips is now 33 years old. He's basically grown up in prison. Growing up in prison, I've seen many dark things. And I've been to some dark places. And he gets a new sentencing hearing because the Supreme Court ruled that juveniles cannot automatically be sent to prison for life. Here's Josh telling the Times Union in Jacksonville that he's grown and matured a lot since he's been behind bars. And he's developed something special that most killers don't have. Empathy. I've, I've grown a lot and I've matured a lot. And I, don't, I can't really tell. Like, this is just average I'm growing up maturing. The fact that I had to come to terms in dealing with that I'm going to die in here, I might do 60, 70 years in prison, really helped me mature and, and helped me grow uh, morally and, and, and it helped me, de- helped me develop empathy, uh, a much stronger empathy now than I ever had. And uh, I don't know that I was sentenced to say I got uh, locked up, all right, and they treated me as a juvenile. And they said, okay, you're getting out of 24. Because in Florida law, your YOs go up to 24. So if they did that, what would have happened? I'd be out right now. Matter of fact, I'd be out right now. And I wouldn't, I don't know what would happen. What Would I still be the same kind of person? Because I wouldn't have had to come to terms with a life sentence. Cue the sad violin music. He sounds really well-educated, doesn't he, for someone who was incarcerated at the age of 14, 15. You know, he missed his high school years and he missed college, but apparently 
Josh Phillips was able to take classes behind bars, which really angered Maddie's mom. Here she is at his resentencing hearing. During these past few days, I've sat here and I'm in this courtroom and I have listened to all of the classes that the defendant has been able to take. What classes has Maddie been able to take over the past 18 years? I didn't walk her down the aisle at her wedding and we were not given the gift of her grandchildren, all taken by one evil, senseless act, and we don't know why. That's her father, Maddie's dad. Very sad. And it's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap your head around how this 14-year-old kid, he says he killed her because she wouldn't stop crying. But there seemed to be something else going on. And the narrative was bad enough to send a young teen away to an adult prison for life. But that's not the story that played out in court for his resentencing hearing. Instead, the packed courtroom heard about a boy who was in a sexually aroused state when he killed the little girl. They learned Maddie was clad in only a t-shirt and white socks when they found her body. And they learned that Phillips watched violent pornography of underaged girls. And they learned that Phillips had books on devil worships and witchcraft. They learned that Phillips was obsessed with Jesse. That would have been Jesse Clifton, Maddie's older sister by three years. And now she's afraid that if he gets out, he'll come after her, according to the assistant state attorney, Bernie De La Rionda. Now, at the start of the resentencing hearing, De La Rionda portrayed Phillips as diabolical. And remember, during his initial trial, the defense didn't even call a witness. They could have called expert witnesses to say that this kid's young mind was being influenced by Satanists and child pornography and that it wasn't his fault. Instead, they dropped the ball. So he spent the better part of a week trying to hammer home the idea now that Phillips has the chance of getting out of prison. Well, Phillips' case is one of some 800 in Florida coming back to the courts now that the U.S. Supreme Court decisions have said it's unlawful to automatically sentence killers who were juveniles at the time of the murder to life behind bars. Life is an option, but it must be left for the very worst cases. So Jesse Clifton... Father Stephen Clifton and Mother Sheila DeLongas implored Judge Waddle Wallace to keep Phillips, now 33, in jail for the remainder of his life. So the parents and the siblings and the family of Maddie wanted him to stay behind bars. Maddie's mom said, there's no reason I believe that you should ever, ever be able to walk outside of prison because Maddie can't. It's just not fair and you should have to pay the consequences for that. On April 5th, 2018, Josh read a letter of apology for the 1998 murder of Maddie Clifton. He just thought that the parents should hear from his heart. This is for the family of Maddie Clifton. I've wanted to say this for a very long time, and uh, I'm grateful that his chance to do so in person uh, has arrived. I don't pretend to know or understand your pain or to grasp the void that I have created in your lives. I can say this. I do understand pain. I have become quite intimate with suffering. Growing up in prison, I have seen many dark things, and I've been to some dark places. Many times throughout this journey, I came dreadfully close to ending my life just to escape it all. During these times, I was embroiled in a flurry of emotions and feelings. Guilt, despair, pain, hopelessness, fear, and shame. Each time, I was somehow able to continue on, mostly because I couldn't stand to put my mother through any more trauma. 
She's been through enough. There were times that I was angry at her because I couldn't end my pain because of her love. Yet now, I'm eternally grateful to her. I'm grateful to her because as I've grown up, I have learned the value of life. I've learned to see the beauty and joy in a world full of strife and experience the truth of unconditional love. I wish to God that I could have known this or understood it when I was 14. Had I then, none of this would have come about. I had no clue what life meant, what death meant, nor the depths of suffering that could follow one act. I had no inkling of how long that suffering could last. I hadn't lived long enough to understand the time involved or what really suffering was. I did something horrible. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what happened. Even now, after all these years, it is just unfathomable that all this could have occurred. It tears my mind asunder to know that I stole such a precious life from you, from the world. I so wish I could take away your pain. I thank God that I've been able to continue on in life and grow, but not a day goes by that I don't think of what led me to where I'm at. Not in prison, but in life. I pray every day that you're able to live your lives in spite of the injury I've caused you. I'm supremely grateful to have an opportunity at physical freedom. Yet any joy that arises in my heart is immediately tempered by the knowledge that these proceedings bring all involved once again, face to face with the horror that occurred in 1998. When I walked the rec yard here in chains, I looked at the sky through mesh wiring, and I thank God repeatedly for giving me hope. My next breath is always devoted to wishing peace and healing upon you all. My hopes, fears, and wishes probably mean nothing to you, but they are there all the same. May you know peace, may you be free from suffering, and may you feel the love that is the sustenance of life itself. May God bless you and heal your wounds as much as possible. Thank you, Your Honor. Unfortunately for Josh, the results are the same as Judge Wada Wallace again sentenced him to life in prison. He's never getting out. And finally, he said it hit him that he would be in prison until he was an old man. He was watching a bunch of the older inmates waiting in line to get their meds. I was just doing every day, I was doing my time, and, and just as if I go through all the programs and everything. And it didn't ever mean, I never had a time to think. They kept me so busy, I didn't really get to think too much. And when I finally did sit down and realize I was in there one day, I'm like, man, life sentence, all right? And I started thinking a little more, and it happened a couple times, but I never got further than that. And then one day it just kind of hit me, like, I don't remember what it was too. I came out. I came out of the chow hall, and when I came out of the chow hall, I see this line of people, and there they are. There are uh, there's like like 30 or 40 of them. You know, that will color in the panhandle, and they're all old. They're all 60, 70 years old, you know, or they're just 50 and look really bad, you know, because <laughs> the prison time can rough on them. They all got canes and walkers and stuff like that. It's the pill line. They're there to pick up their medication, and it's like, wow, you know, that's gonna be me. <laughs> And that's when it really hit me. It's like, oh my God. And uh, I got really depressed when that happened. And I was depressed. I was in a funk for a little while because it, it finally set in. So I'm not trying to mitigate what Josh Phillips did to Maddie Clifton. It was horrendous. It was awful. But to look at him today, he is, he's a good-looking kid. Well, he's a man now. He's 33. 
He's serving life without parole, or LWOP, and facts prove that life in prison without the possibility of parole is severe and certain punishment. The reality is that people sentenced to life without parole have been condemned to die in prison, and that's basically what happens. They die in prison of natural causes, just like the majority of people sentenced to death. Many of the victims' families prefer LWOP rather than a swift death sentence, so the inmate can just linger and think about their crime for years on end. Some say death in prison is the most severe sentence. So long-term inmates like Josh, especially lifers, appear to cope maturely with confinement by establishing daily routines that allow them to find meaning and purpose in their prison lives, lives that might otherwise seem empty and pointless and without hope. Guilt, despair, pain, hopelessness, fear, and shame. So I want to move on from that story to a new story that happened this week. This is a very dark day. Special Agents Daniel Alfin and Laura Schwarzenberger were shot and killed in the line of duty. When you leave your house in the morning, you want to come home. So now you have two people who can't go home to their families, you know, and that's what broke our heart. Serving a warrant during a pre-dawn raid is always risky, and the danger is heightened by the uncertainty of what evil might be lurking behind a closed door. Tuesday morning, the first week of February 2021, a team of FBI agents faced sinister uncertainty in Sunrise, Florida and Broward County when their routine effort to serve a search warrant turned deadly. Law enforcement sources say the suspect was lying in wait, armed with an assault rifle and monitoring the every move of the child pornography task force team via a doorbell camera. The unsuspecting agents were sitting ducks sprayed with gunfire right through the closed door. Special agents 36-year-old Daniel Alfin and 43-year-old Laura Schwarzenberger were fatally struck by the guerrilla warfare style assault. Both were there to serve a warrant on 55-year-old David Lee Huber. He lived alone in the Sunrise apartment complex. Huber was the target of a child porn search warrant being served by the agents early Tuesday morning. And using the image from his doorbell camera, he was able to unload his assault-style weapon on the agents through the door. So I have the pleasure to speak with my friend, uh, the former Broward Sheriff Scott Israel, who is very knowledgeable on this topic of serving warrants and SWAT teams because he was the sheriff of Broward County, and that was your job. Were you ever on a SWAT team, and how are you? I was. I'm doing well, and I hope you and all the listeners are well. And, and actually, I um, was the SWAT commander for quite a few years when I was a member of the Fort Lauderdale Police Department. So, you know, I'm very familiar and very experienced with the uh, serving of warrants and hostage situations and barricaded subjects and what have you. Then we're not going to talk directly about the FBI agents and what led to their shooting, but we're going to talk in generalities about how to address serving a search warrant and careful risk assessment and the protocols for BSO, at least when you were head of BSO. What did you tell your deputies to do in order to protect them. Well, the first thing you want to do is, and probably one of the most important things of a search warrant, is to do as comprehensive a threat assessment as possible. You want to know everything you know about the interior of the 
home or the structure to be searched. You want to do everything you can to know about them. Are they armed? Have they purchased firearms or what have you? You want to know if there are children inside the home. So on that list, and speaking hypothetically and not specifically about what happened, but these ring doorbells, they are good to help homeowners protect their homes and their lives from someone who might be breaking in, but they can also be used in a 180 against law enforcement. Can they not? Is that part of the risk assessment to know if there's one of those installed? You know, well said, Karen. I couldn't have said it better myself. We have, and I know you're familiar with this, there are no-knock search warrants that you can apply for and ask the judge for a no-knock where you can make a dynamic entry, go inside without announcing. That's a very, very set of special circumstances. Most warrants are knock and announce. You want to let the people know inside that you are the police to actually avoid a confrontation. You don't want people thinking people are bursting into their homes, even though law enforcement is hired with, it'll say police or sheriff, and you're shouting sheriff police as you move through the structure. But if I were going to do a knock and announce search warrant, we will coach them. We train that you want to stay out of a fatal funnel area. And a fatal funnel is that hallway or that door entrance where you come through. And if anybody is ready to shoot, you're very, very, very vulnerable at the time. You would want to stay out of the fatal funnel and you would want to stay under cover and concealment of the home or depending on the uh, nature of the warrant, you might have team members with shields and doing whatever you can to protect yourself. So when would you and why would you serve a no-knock warrant as opposed to announcing? One is if you feel the subject inside is armed or has the ability to arm himself. If you feel that maybe it's a drug warrant, by for a no-knock search warrant if you feel that knocking on the door would give the suspect a chance to destroy the evidence. I mean, if you're doing a search warrant, you're going in there to recover evidence. But still, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the most important thing about a warrant is the safety of those inside and the safety of the law enforcement that are trying to execute. But you, when you knock and announce, you want to give the people inside the home or the business a reasonable time to come to the door and open it up. You're hoping not to breach the door. You're hoping to just have somebody answer the door and say police with a search warrant. And then you come in and you do what the warrant directs you to do. That doesn't always happen that way, I mean, because that depends upon the behavior of those inside. It's a dangerous situation. Yeah, I mean, there's always risk involved and you have to mitigate that. I appreciate your expertise on the topic. Former Broward Sheriff Scott Israel, thanks so much. Take care. Okay. Bye, Karen. The shooter, David Huber, not so lucky. He barricaded himself in his apartment and after a standoff, he shot and killed himself. And he had no prior federal or Florida criminal record. You just never know. That wraps up Full Rigor. Thanks for listening. Join me again next week. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.